Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand, and today I am joined by an amazing guest. Now, he's probably not someone you would think would show up on a film podcast necessarily, but his talent as a storyteller has had a huge influence on me, and his success as an independent creator makes him someone that artists of all disciplines can learn from. Ben Golliver is a sports writer and podcaster based in Los Angeles. Now, after graduating from Johns Hopkins with a BA in writing, he began his sports journalism career in 2007 with the self-published blog titled Draft Kevin Durant, in which he argued for the Portland Trailblazers to draft Kevin Durant over Greg Oden. For those of you who aren't sports fans, the Trailblazers did eventually draft Greg Oden, and it would go down as one of the worst draft day decisions in NBA history. Ben then spent the next decade writing for BlazersEdge.com, CBSSports.com, and Sports Illustrated. He is now the national NBA writer for the Washington Post. And in 2021, he wrote his first book titled Bubble Ball, which documented his 93-day stay inside the NBA's Disney World bubble during the early months of the COVID pandemic. Now, in addition to all this... Ben is a brilliant podcaster. He and his co-host, Andrew Sharp, run a podcast. Uh, let me take that again. He and his co-host, Andrew Sharp, run an amazing independent basketball podcast titled Greatest of All Talk. I am a huge fan. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Golliver. Ben, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing very well after that intro. Between your research and your incredible voice, I feel so important. I'm coming in here with a great uh, mentality, a great attitude, and looking forward to chatting with you. How are you doing? Uh, man, I'm I'm doing really good. You know, this is this is like quite surreal for me, considering that as I have listened to you talk for two to three hours a week for about five years, and I don't think I've missed a week in five years. So to be sitting here even virtually talking to you, it, it's it's a surreal feeling. <laughs> Well, the thing I love about podcasting and like meetups or, you know, online meetups like we're doing right now is I feel like there is no level of fame where people will not geek out if they meet someone they've listened to from podcasting. Like I geek out anytime I see a podcaster in the wild that I listen to and I'm telling them their inside jokes and they're like, all right, chill out, easy, bro. And I feel like even someone like Barack Obama, you know, because he has his own podcast or he did. I'll bet you he listens to podcasts, and if he met the person he's listening to, he would do the exact same thing. It's just one of those fun little kinship deals about this uh, medium. The the real power of the medium is that intimacy, you know. Like I always imagine it, like you know, we have these like communication skills, we have these storytelling skills. They developed probably three hundred, four hundred thousand years ago as like early humans gathered around fires to like tell stories about the hunt that day, right? And podcasts like take this like. 100,000 year legacy and then put it as if someone's whispering into your ear. And like how is that not like I mean that it's so clearly powerful. 
Well, I mean, I think one of my inspirations for podcasting is actually my grandpa, uh, my dad's dad. Now, he was late in his life. He was blind. So we're talking like 15, 20 years. He pretty much didn't have eyesight. And it obviously got worse over the years. But by the end, he couldn't see anything. And he would sit, um, you know, in this big rocking chair he had in his living room, and he would listen to audiobooks way before audiobooks were like a craze. So he was ingesting so much knowledge in the like last twenty years of his life compared to the previous like sixty years when he just worked at a automotive factory, like a typical nine to five job, and you know you're just talking to your coworkers and going home, and you know you got your lunch pail. Uh, and that's kind of your day, right? And he was an unbelievable storyteller. My favorite part, as all good storytellers, you never knew exactly what was true or like when it was a fishing story, but he had such an engaging way of talking. So uh, I think when I first was getting into podcasting, I had a very rigid idea of like, I need to be coming on here and almost giving like the evening news. It's got to be like very informative and straight laced because, you know, at the time I'm like a basketball writer who's like discussing my reporting. And you just sort of come to find out you got to loosen it up a little bit. You have to have a good time. You got to tell some of those fishing stories and and kind of the the Great Depression tales that my grandpa would uh, would tell us. And you know that's that's kind of how I view it. And and the intimacy is the exact right word. You know, you're just kind of sitting around the living room, listening to Grandpa G tell stories. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And and yeah, and you certainly do an incredible job. But I I want to take it even back before podcasting was on your radar. And you know, and I'm going to resist the urge to even talk too much about the NBA or or college football things that you and I DM about from time to time. And instead, I want to just talk about your journey as a writer. When did you first discover your interest in writing? Well, you're a film guy, so I'm going to give you this the hackiest film analogy possible. I am yes. basically Forrest Gump when it came to my career. Like young writers will always ask me, like, how do I do your path? And I was like, look, man, like you could try to live Forrest Gump's life, you know, but you're never going to be playing ping pong where he was playing ping pong and swimming through the uh you know the water in dc like he was and all that kind of stuff it's just has been a series of lightning strikes that i didn't really plan i didn't really predict i was not one of these guys who was like you know student paper in high school student paper in college goes to journalism school i went to johns hopkins and they didn't even have a journalism program i've never taken a journalism uh, class in my life, completely self-taught. But throughout my life, I always loved basketball and I always loved writing. And it's amazing how long it took me to figure out that I should put those two things together and have a dream job. But by the mid my, by my mid-20s, I finally figured it out. And it happened because of uh, what you mentioned earlier, which is the Blazers winning that number one pick uh, in the 2007 NBA draft. I was doing a marketing job at just a random suburb of Portland, uh, selling bike racks and and outdoor supplies basically online. It was a lot of e-commerce work, drop shipping type work. Not super glamorous, but it was, you know, relatively early in the online uh, you know, commerce area. And so it was a, a very stable and, and kind of thriving business. But, you know, I, I drive home from work that day. The Blazers win the right to the number one pick. And in Portland, this city that had started to very slowly generate some positive momentum with the basketball team after a really tough stretch where the fans kind of fell out of love with the team and with the organization. It was just this massive moment. I mean, there's not a lot going on in Portland. And this felt like the biggest deal, you know, probably in 15 or 20 years from a sporting perspective. So I immediately was just like, how do I get in on this? And I didn't even hesitate. I mean, within an hour of them getting the number one pick, I had started this uh, Blogspot site. And I understand some younger people now don't even know what Blogspot is. It was basically Substack before Substack, but it wasn't a newsletter. It was just, you know, you kind of put up your own blog, kind of like a Tumblr. 
And I mean, this was the jankiest website you've ever seen. I mean, the, the header image was a picture of Kevin Durant at Texas with just like a Microsoft paint heart around his head. Uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm comparing him to like a baby giraffe in terms of how he moves. And I adopted oh just a, I adopted a really sarcastic voice. Um, you know, cause it was, uh, I didn't use my name at that time. The site was just called draft Kevin Durant and every, uh, article was written by draft Kevin Durant. Right. And I had this very sarcastic voice that was kind of cultivated in my writing program, which was all about fiction, nonfiction and poetry, uh, you know, at Hopkins. And, you know, we would sit around in these uh, circles, reading each other's stories and trying to like, you know, make each other laugh, make each other cry with our, our crazy poems and, uh, you know, our, our senior projects, which were sort of like, uh, half of a novel basically and uh, the whole thing was just trying to be slanted i was uh, like the north korean propaganda minister for kevin durant you know i was <laughs> i was trying to tear down greg odin i was trying to hype up kevin durant i was trying to make the best argument i possibly could and kind of the the, the very end of the the project right before the draft i released like a 25 page term paper explaining why the Blazers had to do this. And I, and I sat there just day after day writing like a college style term paper for probably an audience of a couple hundred people. I mean, how many, who's even going to read that? Nobody, right? But it was a passion project for me. And I was so convinced that I had made such a great argument that when I was watching the draft, even though everyone said Greg Oden was going to win, I had convinced myself that I had been so smart. My ego was so big at that moment that the Blazers were going to listen to me and they were going to take Kevin Durant. And when they took Greg Oden, I almost burst into tears. I'm not a very emotional guy, but my head hit the desk. I remember where I was at this uh, sports bar in Tigard, Oregon, and I was like shook. And, you know, it started to sink in like, wait a minute, your whole project was called Draft Kevin Durant. They didn't draft Kevin Durant. What the heck are you going to do now? So I had my first midlife crisis about a month into my writing career where I had to like email all these other people <laughs> who I had been spamming links to my site, right? And I have to say, hey, like, what do I do now? How should I try to like, you know, capitalize on this? Because I did get a, quite a bit of attention. It was a contrarian uh, take at the time. Odin was the overwhelming favorite. I actually framed an article from the newspaper from the time where one of the the letters to the editor in response to my story had been, even cavemen know you got to take Greg Oden, right? It's like even the Geico caveman is smart enough to realize that Greg Oden is the right pick. So I was, you know, it was like 95 to five probably in favor of Greg Oden. And, um, but I was dead set the other direction. And, you know, it qu pretty quick, quickly played out my way. I mean, Odin's injured basically in summer league. KD becomes a rookie of the year and they just kind of go on their, their separate directions and, you know, by the end of the following season, I had been able to get myself a media credential and uh, for a local blog that was just all about the Blazers, kind of like a fan site. But I took a little bit more of a, a writerly approach to it, a little bit more of an independent approach to it than some of the other team bloggers at the time. And I was just able to kind of like slowly but surely keep showing up, keep showing up, get my foot in the door. You know, I'm paying for my own parking uh, passes down at the arena. Uh, I'm not making any money doing this. I, I'm basically just moonlighting. So I'd leave my day job at 5 p.m. and rush down to get to the arena in time for the seven o'clock tip. And I'd stay up until one or two o'clock in the morning riding. And I'd often like, you know, hit the McDonald's drive through on the way home after the game to get a Big Mac to make sure I could kind of get through my like ridiculously long stories about every single game. But uh, I think just the single mindedness of, uh, you know, having a, one topic that I was just obsessed with and that I clearly people understood that I really enjoyed writing about 
and being from Portland, you know, really helped that too, because I grew up with a lot of my readers, you know, not maybe in the same class, but in the same ways, right? We all had the similar experiences growing up as sports fans. So um, that was kind of how I got my my start. And I'll be honest, man, it just took over my life. Um, over the course of the next three or four years, I just completely became, you know, addicted to Twitter, addicted to covering every single event, trying to break some news, trying to write extensive features, basically making up for all the lost time uh, that I, you know, didn't have because I never went to journalism school, just learning everything on the fly, watching, you know, some of the writers in town, how they worked and kind of incorporating elements of of their approach to what I did and then just having fun with it. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another and I just started making, you know, some steps at CBS and then I was going to SI, as you mentioned, then the Washington Post. And every single time I got a new job, it was right back to the uh, the Forrest Gump feeling of like, wait a minute. CBS Sports wants me. Why? Why would they want me? I'm just a random guy in my living room, right? And uh, yeah. but you know, I think you know the moral of the story really is: you, you find what you love, commit to it, and just go all in. You know, I had no long term plan. I didn't have, oh yeah, I need to be profitable within 18 months, or I'm going to give up. Uh, my parents were kind of looking at me funny, like, how is this going to work out? You're doing all this for free. Why are you doing this? And, you know, I'm sure my boss at work was like, why is he coming in so tired every morning? Why does he have three cups of coffee before 830 in the morning? You know, it's like, well, that's because I was up until two writing. But, uh, you know, it, it all came together for me. And I'm so lucky. That's that's the main takeaway is the, the gratitude part of it, because I came through a non-traditional route. And because there's not really anyone else that I know in the NBA sphere who came through a, a similar path as I did, um, I just feel like I won the lottery every day. You, your parents have somewhat of a literary background. I know your dad is a Bob Dylan super fan, so you had <laughs> you had some kind of writing exposure growing up. Was was the Bob Dylan in your household something that you rebelled against, or something that inspired you? Oh yeah, you know he's the Bob Dylan generation. I'm the Tupac generation. So you know we go back and forth on who's the real poet. You know, and we're, obviously I've made no, uh, I made no progress in kind of kissing him. But you know I have a, a pretty interesting background. So my grandmother, my my mom's mom was a librarian. Uh, my mom was a lawyer and a teacher, uh, elementary school teacher. And so she was the one who was really pushing books on me from an early age. She was the one who was really, uh, you know, getting me like a writing tutor when I was even in uh, elementary school, helping me learn how to craft arguments, uh, you know, writing wise. And that really came from her mom. So like my book, for example, Bubble Ball, it's dedicated to the two of them because I feel like ultimately they're the ones who kind of put me in this uh, genre. And my dad's actually a computer programmer. And you could look at that as its own form of writing. You know, he has a number of pads and pretty successful guy. And, and he worked, uh, you know, in, in technology for years and years and years, but it's a different type of writing. And so, you know, I think some of the logical uh, you know, aspects of how I approach covering the sport, you know, sometimes you're trying to rein in your emotions uh, when you're evaluating players. I think a lot of that stuff probably comes from him. Uh, because it's it's more technical, it's more ones and zeros as opposed to uh, you know the the literature stuff of the lily ponds and you know all the stuff that you get into when you're you're doing like real <laughs> writing. So um, I have a very interesting balance that way. So when you're at Johns Hopkins, like what are you what are you imagining what your life might look like, and and who are the authors that you're <laughs> looking to of like how you know what what could this career potentially be? 
No, I mean, I was living day to day in college, man. I don't want to like oversell it, but I was an idiot. I mean, I, I see so many teenagers who come up and know exactly what they want to do or the path that they want to be on, young writers who you know, have it all mapped out. And I had none of that. So when I went to Hopkins, I was initially thinking poli-sci international relations. They have really good schools there in DC and a lot of connections, uh, you know, in that DC area, Baltimore area. And I just found that the writing classes were the most fun. And uh, frankly, they were also the easiest for me. You know, I was like, oh, I can get A's in this. And, you know, it's, you know, I can still have a good time uh, outside of the classroom. And Honestly, it was culture shock for me coming from a public high school in Beaverton, Oregon, um, going back east where a lot of my friends went to boarding schools. They went to, you know, some of them were from like international, you know, academies, like really impressive educational backgrounds. So I was always feeling like I had to keep up or or catch up, you know, and um, ultimately I also wanted to get out of there. I was like, well, you know, Portland or Baltimore, man, Portland, it's got, you know, beautiful trees, beautiful rivers, lakes, uh, waterfalls, all this stuff. And Baltimore is just kind of a different vibe. So my whole mission after, you know, probably my first year at Hopkins was to just graduate as quickly as possible. So I I did graduate early and just try to get on with my life, but I had no major plan. You know, my original plan after I graduated was that I was going to go and do the Peace Corps. And uh, I had been accepted by the Peace Corps uh, to go to Jordan and so uh, when we were when I was a kid, we had actually lived in Israel for about six months. And so there was sort of a, a mid Middle East tie there. Um, I felt like that would be a good place to go, you know, potentially longer term if I was going to get into uh, politics or, you know, international relations or whatever. Um, but at the last minute, their doctors, the Peace Corps doctors said, you know, you've got a heart issue. You can't go. And I wound up being really lucky because uh, a couple years later, actually right after I started writing for Blazer's Edge, I had to have a, a second heart surgery in uh, in 2008. So um, I think I only missed one Blazers game and they ran a tape of the game over to the hospital for me, which was like a really cool thing that the Blazers PR staff did. And uh, then I was right back at the arena, you know, even though I was a little bit weak and not feeling great, I, I got myself back at the arena as quickly as I could afterwards. But, you know, that was a kind of a a turning point for me because it it really allowed me to kind of reprioritize, like, what do I want to do? It's like, well, I had my fun in college, right? Um, There's only so many times you can go to the bar, so many times you can go to the club. Uh, I didn't really love that stuff anyways. You know, why don't we just clear all that aspect out of your life and just focus on this new challenge, which is like basketball, writing about it and seeing where this can go. And it was exciting. It was different. And it just really let me focus and, um, you know, become obsessive about it. You know, I I think that's the word. I mean, uh, my first year at CBS Sports, I think I had the most total stories that any writer uh, on staff had. And I want to say it was like pretty much the most views or if not, you know, pretty close to the top. And, you know, again, I'm like in my mid 20s, don't really know what I'm doing, not covering anything from anywhere besides my living room. You know, maybe I got to go to the All Star Week and I, I don't remember. Um, so it was that level of devotion, 24 7, 365, um, you know, for for a number of years there uh, to kind of transition out of that uh, that time period. But coming out of college, I had no clue. I mean, I was uh, delivering newspapers for the Oregonian. I was a special education assistant at a local middle school um, because, you know, I had kept in touch with some teachers, uh, you know, when I was after coming out of high school, I was just bouncing around trying to figure out anything that I could do, you know, got that marketing job for a couple of years and, and did that. 
and um, you know ultimately just kind of fell into writing backwards. When you were at Hopkins, and uh, so I had this experience because I because I went to art school in New York, and I grew up a big sports fan. But when I was suddenly immersed within this art school uh, art school world, college world, like you know, sports wasn't so cool among my peers. And I like let it set it down for a little bit. Did you always try to like maintain your relationship both between the arts and the writing that you were doing and your love of sports? Or did you ever question that? Well, so, you know, coming out of Portland, the only team that we had was the Blazers, right? So I didn't have an NFL team, didn't have a great college team. And I was a Michigan football fan because of my uh, parents being from Michigan and my grandparents, but um, hadn't been to many games at that point. So, you know, the NBA was my main touch point. And going back east into Baltimore, where there was no team, the only team nearby was the Wizards. People didn't really care, even though it was MJ's comeback right around that time. It wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but, you know, I surrounded myself with a lot of sports fans. I mean, I remember everybody was playing mad and everybody was playing fantasy football even back then. We drove up one time to go see Allen Iverson in Philly. And of course, a, a brawl broke out in the game. So it was great. You know, we're up in the nosebleeds <laughs> and it's like, you know, Allen Iverson's getting chucked into the third row. And like, this is heaven. You know, this is great. But there was all sorts of sports interest at Hopkins. You know, lacrosse, we won the national title my senior year. I say we like I was on the team. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, it was a big deal. You know, okay. Hopkins loves lacrosse. And they actually have the National Lacrosse Hall of Fame is on campus. So um, that, that was a really big deal. And then, you know, baseball, he had Yankees, Red Sox fans, you know, pretty much everybody was from that Northeast corridor. And that was right in the, the peak of their rivalry, at least, you know, the last 20 years or so. And then the Ravens were a monster deal. And I want to say they went to the Super Bowl. They probably won it when I was there, too. I've never been a huge NFL fan, but the, the sports culture there was strong. And mm. uh, and so there wasn't really the stigma that you're describing, I think. There was a lot of people who are going there to become incredibly fancy, successful doctors who just did not care. But right, among yeah. my circle, you know, it was a lot of really hardcore sports fans. And we would go to Orioles games. You know, I remember I, you know, I barehanded a foul ball uh, with a beer in my other hand. It was like the coolest moment of my life when I did that. You know, they showed me on the jumbo <laughs> show and I was like, oh my God, I think I peaked as a human being, right? So uh, <laughs> there was uh there was some moments like that for sure at, at Hopkins. But there was no local NBA team. And so that was something I was really excited to get back to when I moved back to Portland. And when I had that uh, you know, job work in marketing, one of the first things I actually spent money on was like a quarter season ticket pass. It was the most that I could uh, you know, afford. The Blazers tickets were incredibly cheap because the team was so bad. You know, I would go to some games right after I graduated. I would be the only person in the entire section. You know, like I couldn't even convince anybody to go with me. Um, and I wasn't going to every game, but you know, I was I was picking and choosing games here and there. And I would call into like the post game radio show, and they would put me right on the air because nobody else is calling it. Nobody else cared. <laughs> it, it was a real ebb, you know. Um, yeah, you had you brought this obsessive focus, but there was also just like all this opportunity uh, just by circumstance. Well, that's the lightning strike moment, right? Is because when they get that number one pick, that just jolts the entire franchise. I mean, think about the San Antonio Spurs right now with Victor Wembanyama. I mean, I think for your film listeners, you got to realize this guy is the most anticipated NBA player in 20 years. So that's the kind of thing that can not only sell out all your season tickets, right? It can get you a new arena built probably in the next five or 10 years. And that was the excitement around Odin coming. And they had a rising up and coming team with a number of really good players. So the momentum was clearly positive. I was not jumping on a sinking ship, put it that way. I was jumping on a ship that I was pretty confident was going to go some really important places. And, you know, ultimately injuries got in the way. They did not fulfill their, their destiny. 
I had to pivot off of just covering that local team because, you know, it, it wasn't going the, the direction that I had kind of hoped and it, and it wasn't going to be enough to kind of sustain a career. And, and that's why I started writing more nationally. But, you know, had I graduated college three years earlier, that positive momentum would not have existed. Right. And so that's why I go back to the whole Forrest Gump deals. I just got really lucky that the year they happened to win the lottery was a year that I was ready to kind of hop on board. So I have a technique question for you. As you pivot from draft Kevin Durant, the blog, and you talk about having this kind of this sort of sardonic uh, voice with like, I'm assuming some hyperbolic kind of arguments of like why they should draft Kevin Durant. You switch to Blazer's Edge and kind of change your tone, it sounds like, and you go for this a bit more of a reporter style tone. Was there ever a, did you ever debate as to like whether to maintain that sort of personality driven style reporting? Um, so I would say it was, it was a mix of both. So first of all, I'll give you an example of kind of how I was talking on Kevin draft Kevin Durant. So the big knock on KD was that he was skinny, right? And he couldn't lift weights. And so he had gone to the pre-draft uh, combine, which they, they put you through all these different tests. And, and one of the tests was how many times can you bench press 185 pounds. And, you know, the, the headline that came out was Kevin Durant bench presses 185 pounds zero times. And this was like this huge, you know, scarlet letter, black mark against his reputation. Oh, he's never going to make it. He can't lift weights. Well, my take on it was Greg Oden didn't even show up to, to the combine. He didn't bother. So Greg Oden bench pressed zero pounds, zero times. You know, that was the kind of arguments that I would be making is like, get off KD's back. At least he tried, you know, Greg Oden didn't even show up. So, um, you know, that, that was kind of the, you know, the, the sarcasm that I would try to work in. But at Blazer's Edge, uh, my main posts were kind of constructed in three different parts. The first part was a traditional like recap of the game with quotes from the players and the coaches and it wouldn't be as formal as a newspaper story, but it would try to be really thorough. Uh, and, you know, they were long, like pretty, I mean, talking about a thousand words, right? The second section, which is what really got people interested and excited was random game notes. And those would often be a first person. I would just be summarizing like the funny signs that fans had brought to the games, something that maybe I had noticed before and after. I would give guys nicknames. You know, one of the sarcastic things I said was, uh, you know, it's appropriate that Luke Babbitt drives an Audi because the Audi symbol is the same as a stat line. You know, the Audi symbol is like, you know, a bunch of concentric circles, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he would just have 0, 0.0 rebound, 0 assist. So I put little lines like that in the story and, and people, you know, really gravitated towards those. And then at the bottom, I would just transcribe everything the coach said so that the diehard fans uh, and actually some deaf fans, you know, who weren't able to like tune into the postgame show and listen to the coach would actually be like really grateful just to have the whole transcript of everything the coach had said so they could follow like a little every move. Right. So that was the standard story. So there was a mix. Right. There was formal writing or more formal writing, but there was also some loose, sarcastic, you know, jokes. And I'll be honest, man, I was pretty hard on the team, too. Like if they lost, I would give it to them. I would I would bring the fire like it was um, not polite. And I actually, you know, wound up catching a lot of grief from various members of the organization, not always the players. Every once in a while, the players would be like, man, you'll print anything. Like You'll put anything that happens in this locker room online. Damian Lillard told me that one time and I was like, yeah. That's kind of the job, bro. You know, it's like, that's why we're here. Um, and I, I think Terry Stotts got mad at me a couple of times for headlines. Uh, he was the coach. And, you know, I might have said, oh, this player got benched was the headline. And he's like, well, no, it's, it's about this other guy getting promoted. That should be the story. And it's like, come on, dude, I'm not that dumb. I know what the story is here. Right. So 
there, there would be some tension points where I was maybe a little bit too negative or too harsh. And we had a couple investigations that actually wound up doing serious damage. Like uh, Greg Oden, uh, during his injury uh you know, saga. I mean, he missed year after year after year with these injuries. And the Blazers had consulted with this guy who was a complete quack. I mean, it just knew nothing. He was like faking medical reports. And, you know, he wound up contacting me because he was upset after they kind of had parted ways with them. Um, and so I did a big investigative story on his relationship and how he was allowed to work on Odin. And, you know, it, it made the organization, you know, look really bad. So, um, you know, it was, there was a confrontational nature to the coverage. You know, I think that some of that has gotten lost, um, you know, in recent years because the NBA is a really buddy, buddy community. But for me, that was really helpful to kind of get my voice heard because people felt, I think that they could trust me. At least I like to think that they thought that um, because I was giving it to you straight. I wasn't just, you know, spoon feeding you, whatever the storyline was. So what do you, what's going through your head as you are collecting those details, as you're writing that stuff up? I mean, I, you know, I think about, because I you know, I got a lot of opinions and a lot of takes about the film industry, but you know there's a lot of fear. You'll even I'll even talk to friends and they'll be like, "Well, you don't want to say anything, you know that you, that might lose you a job in five years." How is it? How are you thinking about approaching that? Is it? Do you rely on journalistic integrity? Do you just rely on the truth? Or are you nervous when you put that stuff out? No, man, I was too young and too dumb to know better. You know that was really <laughs> the thing. Like honestly, and I think. Uh, you know, a lot of what I look back uh, on my early writing is just massive ego. And I, I try not to have a huge ego, you know, these days, try to always stay humble and stay level. But when you're young, you think you have it all figured out. You think all the old guys are doing it wrong. You know, I remember one story I wrote, and this is this is wild in hindsight and pretty embarrassing, but a local writer who had covered the team since the early 80s, uh, his name is Kerry Eggers, and he's written multiple books, wrote a book with Clyde Drexler. I mean, he's one of the well-known guys locally. Um, it's not a very big journalism community. And he had written something that had bothered me, and I forget exactly what it was. I think it was an anti-blog take. You know, he, had, he was taking shots at one of the uh, local newspapers, bloggers, uh, he was like a beat writer. And I think he was just providing some details about, oh, I went to go rent a car at this airport. And then I drove here X, Y, Z. He was trying to give you like a slice of his life. And Kerry Eggers was just very old school and was like, you should never use first person. You should never make yourself the story. You should always keep the the team, the focus of the story. So he had written that up. And I had taken it personally because I feel like I'm representing bloggers everywhere, right? And you know, this is my my battle to fight. So I essentially wrote like a 1,500 word takedown where I told him that he needed to retire and he was, you know, past his prime. I was just going at him for no reason, you know. But I felt like at that time I was so young, uh, you know, he fired the first shot. I was just responding, you know. I was I was putting it on him, and he handled it with grace. Um, you know, he never really fired back at me. I think we had some sort of a peace summit, and the older I got, the more I really respected how he handled the aftermath of that because this some punk kid is just saying, like, go retire. I mean, that's completely out of line. Yeah. And uh, I would consider ourselves friendly now. Like, when I see him, I'm always excited to see him. He's had just an incredibly long and, and distinguished career. Um, but that just gives you a taste of, like, where I was coming from. I think sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And at that point in my life, I just had no clue, you know, I, young and dumb is how, you know, and, and kind of, you know, fearless. And I think a lot of what we were trying to do is build a name. Right. And so if I would put something out there like that, it's getting a lot of clicks, you know, it's getting people commenting. It's, you know, people are trying to take sides, you know, and you know, that was a, a big part of the deal too. I mean, this was the era of like Deadspin 
and early Bill Simmons where like controversy and edginess was kind of selling. And, um, you know, there, there was times like that instance where we definitely crossed the line. There's no question about it. Um, but you know, you live and learn and it's the internet. And that was one benefit that we had where it's like, well, things kind of live forever. They're always there, but people move on to the next story within 24 hours. And it, it didn't wind up, you know, handicapping me horribly, but, uh, you know, it's funny because now I view myself as kind of like almost the the ultimate inside guy. You know, it's like you're writing for the Washington Post. I get to sit courtside at the biggest NBA events. Uh, I got to spend 93 days in the bubble where pretty much like no media was allowed. And back then I viewed myself 180 degrees. I was the outsider. I was somebody, you know, kind of a fly on the wall who's experiencing this NBA environment and trying to just, you know, point out its flaws basically and then be really edgy with the tone. So there was absolutely been a, uh, if you want to call it a softening or a maturing, whatever it would be, there's been a real strong arc on that. But every once in a while, I'll bring the, the blades back out, man. I, I had a column a couple of years ago uh, about James Harden, where I was going after him when he requested the trade from Houston and basically said like his actions sort of like his games indefensible, you know, like there's no way you can defend <laughs> him. And, you know, people still responded to that, you know, and I was when I wrote it, I was like, oh, this is maybe a little harsh for the Washington Post, you know, it's like we got a that's a weighty name, you know, there's been a lot of really good work that goes into it. And, uh, you know, we're just the sports guys, maybe we should chill out. But, you know, people still respond to it when you have a strong take and when you're you're not afraid to put it out there. And that's really kind of how I balance things now. As I say, most of that stuff for podcasts because it's it's exactly what podcasts thrive on. And the writing, I would like to think, is a little bit more restrained, a little bit more thoughtful, you know, more put together in, in that way. You're not just a, a hot take guy on the podcast. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, in fact, kind of like what you were saying, you're even a bit old school. I think, you know, your co-host, Andrew Sharp, refers to you as Grandpa Gulliver uh, for some of your takes. Which is a real honor, as I told you, because Grandpa G, the real Grandpa G is sitting there telling us stories about the Depression. So when he calls me that, I, I wear that as a a badge of honor. And I'll, I'll tell you every once in a while, you know, I, I reference over oh, sitting out on our porch, you know, in the rocking chairs, that kind of stuff. I mean, that's all from you know, family experiences. So, you know, all that <laughs> stuff to me is like, yeah, that's a, that's a compliment. It's, it's no, uh, it's no knock. He's often saying that in reference to you base your opinions and your point of view, both about basketball and about life within these sort of principle based thinking. Um, and, you know, I have been really inspired by that. I can honestly say that like listening to you over the years has made, couching one's opinions, couching one's taste in a principle, cool. Um, you know, how did you develop this sort of principled view of your work and of the work that you cover? Well, again, not intentionally. You just kind of fall into it. I think when you podcast a lot, you wind up repeating yourself a lot and you wind up kind of hating the sound of your own voice when you're making the same points over and over again, right? So, uh, the, some of the principal stuff just was a matter of shorthand, right? It's this idea of like, hey, I've made this argument before. I want to reference this argument in this new, uh, you know, reference to a player or a team or whatever. And here's this shorthand that everybody already understands and kind of is almost like an efficiency device. So one example for that would be, you know, the greatest ability is availability. That's probably my, one of my most famous catchphrases. And that's like a life mantra for me too. But it's this idea that, you know, it's, oh, you've got the the shirt on right now. Yeah. So, 
um, that's a scouting maxim. That was taught to me by an NBA executive who was very, very successful NBA executive. And he's basically saying, before you judge what a player's talent is, before you judge what his character is, his mental components, can he stay healthy and be on the court? And then the other aspect to availability is this idea of emotional availability, which gets undersold a little bit um, with this, this catchphrase. But this idea of like, does he care? You know, or is he just showing up and going through the motions, right? Are you available to your teammates and your coach, um, both physically and emotionally, right? That's the idea. So the greatest ability is availability. That's kind of the foundation of everything. And, you know, so we might have a conversation about Kyrie Irving and his anti-Semitic, you know, uh, support of a movie. And then he has to apologize. And it's like, but Kyrie's so great. Maybe you should trade for him. You got to look past the controversy. Such an amazing player. Well, you can just say, well, the greatest ability is availability, and he's often not available because he's getting suspended or he's injured or he's just not on the court. So let's try to cut through all the noise and the debates about whether you want him or not, and just fundamentally, is he going to be a reliable person? And you know that that mantra can really help you get there uh, more quickly. I mean, another one that I use is like Winfluencer. And, you know, again, that just kind of came about organically. We were talking about guys who influence wins, like, who, you know, in, in basketball, there's these plus minus stats. So if you're on the court and your team's winning, you get credit for it. If you're on the court and your team's losing, well, you're, you're going to get docked. And, you know, over the course of many, many games, the best players will have, you know, huge uh, statistical, uh, you know, net positives right where their teams are just winning more consistently and more often than lesser players and the very best of those are the ones who are driving the wins right not just on the court when it's happening but the ones who are really making sure that their teams come out on top and so winfluencer became a shorthand for like well this guy over here yes he's on the team but it's not really he's not the guy who's really making this happen. Whereas, Hey, this player, this superstar deserves the extra credit because he's doing all the little things and the big things to make sure his team comes out on top. So, um, you come up with these little labels, they stick. I think sometimes the cornier, the better, honestly, because those are the ones that make you groan, but they're also the ones you'll never forget. Right. And so another one that I use is touchy feely and that one (laughs) tends to drive people crazy. Um, but you know, for me, touchy feely, like we all know, like, you know, elementary school teachers will talk about touchy feely books, right. Or like touchy feely material. Um, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that's, you know, maybe a little bit corny and it'll make you cry and, and all that. But, you know, on the basketball court, a touchy feely player is a guy who's got the ability to kind of shoot it from anywhere because he's got amazing touch, but he also has the feel and the understanding of people around him. And and he's going to be a good passer too. Those are players that just inherently I like. I've always liked, you know, for years and years and years. And, and those are players I felt um, are net positives to their environment, whose skills will transition if they get traded. Those are just the kinds of guys that you want. And so, again, it's another shorthand rubric where if I see a, a high school player or a college player and I see that he has those skills, instead of doing like a two minute breakdown of like, here's all the things that I like about him. I could just say, Hey, look, this guy's got the touchy feely. This is, this is what we're looking for. And you know, my, my listeners and and people who are paying attention will kind of understand where I'm coming from. But I do try to create these names um, to reinforce my, my base level values of what I'm looking for in players. Right. So typically I don't want people who are selfish. I don't want people who are unreliable. Um, Typically, Unfortunately, I don't like guys who are going to have injury issues. Um, I don't like people who are gunning for stats. I don't like people who make 
easy things look difficult just for the sake of having it look cool. You know, it's like if it's an easy task, make it an easy task and move on. If it's a difficult difficult task and you can make it look easy, great. You know, but I, I don't like the other way around. And so you know, th- those just general preferences in terms of how I'm watching the sport create the framework for these other little slogans that kind of reinforce the principles, if that makes sense. I think you kind of are articulating a point that I've always uh, loved about sports is that sports are kind of a, a, a hard evidence testing zone for certain truths of life. And these might be things that I certainly have had to learn the hard way over the course of, of my of my of my life. But when you look at a sports game, you can easily see how selfishness leads directly to a loss. And by having that concrete example, you can then reflect on your own life. And I can't help but feel that these principles that you are seeing objectively on a basketball court have also some kind of personal uh, reflection on you and the standard you hold to yourself as well. Yeah, I I like to think so. I mean, I'll I'll say this. I'm much harder on basketball players in general than I probably am on myself. Like if I could live up to the standards that I hold some of these guys to, um, (laughs) I would be a a much better person than I am. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the core values um, are you know, pretty much the same on and off the court, right? Like you want to be a good person. You want to make the situation around you better. I also love the outdoors, you know, being raised in Oregon and and spending a lot of time at national parks. So, you know, mantras like leave no trace or, you know, take nothing but photos, leave nothing but footprints. Like those are things that, uh, you know, to me are, you know, deeply ingrained. Like, I don't know if you saw recently the the women's uh, Japanese soccer team at the Women's World Cup, uh, left their locker room after their match completely spotless. And they wrote a little thank you note to the cleaning staff um, for being their hosts, you know, and, and something like that to me, I mean, that's like leave no trace. Uh, and it's a perfect example of how sports and like outside uh, values can line up. And that just gets me excited. Like there was another story, this, uh, this basketball player, Wendell Carter Jr. When he was a, a high school, actually down in Georgia, they won the state championship and they were on the bus ride home and he wouldn't let his team get off the bus until they had cleaned the entire bus uh, bus up, taken off all the hamburger wrappers and everything else because his parents had always taught him it's important to clean up after himself. So little things like that, or if I hear that nugget about this guy, okay, I'm not going to say he's going to be a Hall of Famer based off that, but that makes me look at him in a little bit of a different light and it, it, it makes me maybe feel a kinship towards him. And it reminds me that that's how I should be, you know, living my life as well. So you know, I'm not saying that I'm more principled than anyone else. I think everyone has their own worldview. Um, but I, I do think that I probably get on my highest horse from a morality standpoint when we're talking about basketball, because it's it's been so much of my life for almost 20 years now. Um, you know, it, it dictates my schedule when I'm available to see family for Christmas or not see them. Uh, you know, when I get to take vacations, you know, when I'm traveling for four months straight, you know, from airport to airport to airport, dealing with, you know, delays and weather issues and all this kind of stuff. It's all in the pursuit of basketball. And I think, you know, the the basketball philosophy stuff in terms of what I value, it's what I it's what I probably take even more seriously than the off court stuff, honestly, because it's it's such a big focus of my life. As a independent creator, you had two projects that were hugely affected or or inspired by the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that this adaptability is is just really impressive and something that everyone can learn from. So the first is, is that you had recently left Sports Illustrated's 
Oh, you were still doing Open Floor, the Sports Illustrated NBA show, but you had recently started your own independent subscription-based podcast, Greatest of All Talk with Andrew Sharp. And you guys had just launched in like December of 2019 or January. It was really... Yeah. So we launched the show in January 2020, obviously not yeah. knowing the pandemic was coming. And that timing was just determined sort of when Andrew had uh, figured out exactly what he wanted to do with his next step of his career after leaving Sports Illustrated. And two months later, the pandemic hit. And, you know, it, part of us were like, well, you know, nine out of 10 small businesses fail, you know, if not more than that, that was actually one of the mantras given to me by my boss at that marketing job, you know, he's because he had started up this company from scratch, actually two different companies and been very successful. But he said, look, you have to have a smart business plan. You got to know your competitive advantages. You got to understand, you know, what you're bringing that nobody else brings. And you also have to understand that like 95% of small businesses fail. So if you fail, um, you know, it's, it's not unusual. You have to be prepared to fail and understand it's possible, but you know, you, what you really want to do is, you know, create a, a situation that will beat the odds and you've got to have a, a very clear vision for how to do that. And there was trepidation when we started the, that show because, you know, they, they tell you typically between five and 10% of your listeners will be willing to pay. And right. so we knew we were leaving a massive audience at Sports Illustrated, but we also didn't know how many of them would migrate. And that sh the previous show, Open Floor, didn't really end on our terms. It ended on their terms, you know, in terms of some business decisions they had made. And it had ended right at its peak of popularity. So if we had been able to go another year or two, it probably would have grown even more. So it was a risk. And then the pandemic comes and we're thinking, well, great, boom, you know, the show's over. There's not going to be anything to talk about. And, you know, that was kind of the initial reaction. And I put it in my book too, uh, Bubble Ball, you know, the first thing you're thinking is, well, if there's no sports to cover, what the heck am I going to write about? You know, are they going to assign me to obituaries or some other department <laughs> of the newspaper or are they just going to get rid of sports? And, you know, it, it was a scary, scary time for everybody, but also just you know, a lot of people lost their jobs during the pandemic, you know, restaurant workers and everything else. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, if there's no sports, you know, what does that mean? Right. Um, at the same time though, and I'll, I bet you remember this, uh, I was pitching really hard as early as March, 2020 about what an opportunity the world stopping was for everybody. And for me, I looked at just in my personal life, well, this gives me so much more time to work out, to get into better shape, to lose weight, to fix my diet, to save money, to pursue uh, this new company that we've started to pour even more time and resources into it because I am not traveling around the country following basketball games. I'm not staying up until 2 a.m. writing about them. Like all of the the major time involvement uh, with my current job has kind of been put on hold. I have this very valuable commodity of like 15 extra hours a day. So how do I spend those, right? And I, I don't know exactly why I had that mentality. It was probably driven out of nerves and stress and just trying to keep myself busy as I was worried about the, uh, you know, the world crumbling. And, you know, my, my mom's dad, uh, my, my grandpa, he was like, he was a guy who wanted to go back to the gold standard. He was always convinced Wall Street was going to just, you know, collapse at any given moment. And, you know, he was stashing money in, in safety deposit boxes, you know, in the event that, you know, the world would end. And so that's kind of where my mind was going initially at the start of the pandemic. I was like, all right, he, he, grandpa was right. <laughs> Here it comes. Like, you know, and, and like the stock market did drop, you know, a huge amount. But, you know, it's this idea of like, well, 
there's people out there who are making tons and tons of money off of the stock market crashing, right? There's always people who are on the other side of the bed. And, you know, it's sort of like the big short. I'm sure you've read that book or you're familiar with it, the idea of housing market crashes, someone makes tons and tons of money, right? So I was kind of, you know, maybe intentionally or unintentionally trying to figure out how can I get on the other side of this? What's the opportunity at this moment when the world is getting put on pause? And so I'm thinking, well, first of all, everybody's going to be on their phones or on the internet all day long, right? Because everybody's sitting around with nothing to do. It's quarantine. And then when the bubble came along, it was like, oh, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Very few other writers are going to be there. Uh, you have kind of the, you know, speaking to myself, like you have the, you know, the familiarity with the league, the knowledge of the sport, but also I was being asked to write a lot of stories that were kind of outside of just the, the pure basketball at that time in terms of how are they going to handle it from a health perspective? What are going to be the rules to keep everybody safe? Uh, you know, how much money is involved? Why is the NBA even bothering to go to Disney World, right? So all these kinds of stories are giving me maybe a broader perspective than maybe the average sports writer um, in that situation. And when the opportunity came along to write a book about it, I jumped at it. I didn't even really care about the money side of it because I was like, this is such a unique situation. It will stand the test of time, right? Like, you know, 20 years from now, I can imagine little kids wanting to know why the heck was there an NBA finals played at Disney World of all places, right? So let me explain it to them in as much detail as possible. And again, it was a great way for for me to stay busy, you know, with, with so much more free time on my hands. So um I view the pandemic in some ways for me, like just uh, from a career standpoint, as one of the better things that's happened to me, because I think I entered it with the right mentality of like, don't let this opportunity go to waste. It's a challenge, but there's also some benefits to it. And then, you know, work as hard as possible. Stick to all your same principles of showing up every single day, being consistent, doing what you love. And if you do have extra time to write a book and extra time to pour into a podcast, um, the end product should speak for themselves. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work that I did during those couple of years. I barely remember it. You know, it's, it's only a couple of years later and it's all so much a blur. And sometimes I even forget I went to Tokyo to cover the Olympics because that was like such a challenging experience. It's like, oh my God, you know, every once in a while, someone will mention those Olympics and it will like hit me like a jolt. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think, you know, to me, it was, it really came back to, you know, challenges can be opportunities. They really can. And sometimes you don't really know what the opportunity is. You just kind of have to go full force into it and hope that it shows up. And that was definitely the case with the pandemic. It's something that's really on my mind a lot right now as the film industry on a whole is in complete crisis. Um, you know, and here I have my little, my little independent project, you know, that like doesn't really exist within the Hollywood sphere to start off with. But, you know, you start thinking ahead of like, well, like I could get really depressed about the state of our industry of this, of this film world, you know, um, or you can just keep putting one foot in front of the other and showing up and, and trying to live up to these principles that you've set out for yourself and, and do what you love. Right. I mean, like, that's yeah. the thing is if, if you're not being forced to write the TV show, like if you're a writer who's striking and they're not letting you write the show right now that they want you to write, Go write the the show that you want to write because eventually it's going to come back together and you're going to have something to show for it, right? That's that's how I always approached it, and that goes back to like the very early days we were talking about earlier with Jeff Kevin Duran. It's like, well, I had a job, it was a fine job, you know, it was relatively stable, it was paying the bills. I was not unhappy, but it wasn't my passion project, and it's like, oh well, 
you know, you get off at five and you have the opportunity to get down to the arena by seven. Well, that's what you want to do, right? So make it happen. Battle the traffic, pay for the parking, you know, line up the media credential, stay late for the post game, you know, stay late those extra couple hours to write uh, when you're going back home and make the sacrifices that other people aren't going to be willing to make. Most other people won't want to. And if you're doing a good job and people are responding to it, it should pay off. Have have some faith, have some belief, have some trust in your work, right? And I think the strike is a perfect example of a challenge that could become a huge opportunity for anybody who's influenced. How much was that audience feedback important to that moment in time for you? And when you didn't get feedback on a given article, you know, because you're making all these, like you said, you're making these huge sacrifices to go down to the Trailblazers game to follow your passions. But that audience response seems to be pretty important part of the equation to know to be something measurable that you're moving towards if you didn't get that response would you change tact how did you approach that well it's actually one case where my philosophy doesn't align with reality so my philosophy is right for yourself and i tell that to anybody like look you're all you're going to be your biggest fan your biggest critic some people hate reading the words they write some people love the sound of their own voice it can range a lot for writers and creators, right? But if you're not doing it for yourself, there's no point, right? Like if you're not becoming happy, if it's not making you happy, if it's not what's driving you, if you don't wake up in the morning thinking about it and, and having that be sort of your North Star, you're in the wrong business, right? And, and just, you know, I'm not saying give up because if it's paying the bills, okay, but you're probably not getting the most out of it. You're not going to be satisfied at the end of the day, right? If it's really, you know, it, it's, your whole life, it's its what you care about, you will know it, you will feel it, and you will be less concerned about negative feedback or no feedback or crickets or anything else because you're ultimately doing what's making you happy and making you excited. And so for me starting off, it was great to get the external feedback and the validation. And if I hadn't gotten it, if I was just sending it out there and there was no responses, I'm sure I would have given up because what would have been the point? But I was, you know, Blazers Edge had a very active readership, even in those early days, just diehard Blazers fans. They're called Blazer Maniacs in Portland. They're known as one of the best fan bases in the NBA. It's because it's, it was a one-horse town for decades and decades and decades. And so I knew I was resonating with people because I could see it. You know, people would tell me, I stayed up until 3 a.m. to wait for you to post your story after the game, right? So I'm getting Whoa. feedback like that. I'm like, That's well, crazy. then it better be – it's better be a good story. I can't take any nights off. Right. And yeah. so, um, that definitely helps sustain me. There's no question about it, but, um, I'm also somebody as I've progressed through, like, I don't read the comments. I don't want to look at traffic numbers. I want to be guided more by what do I feel is an important contribution to basketball discourse. And, you know, this is true with some recent features I wrote. Um, you know, I did a story on a, a South Korean referee, a guy who's trying to become the first ever NBA referee from outside North America and the sacrifices he made to come and do that. I did another story recently about, uh, you know, a rookie, Derek Lively, who basically saw his dad die of a heroin overdose when he was seven. And then his mom got Hodgkin's lymphoma and almost died, you know, three years later. So he's already been to hell and back twice before he even gets to the NBA. Now. If I wrote a story about LeBron, is it going to get more clicks than either one of those other stories? Possibly, right? But if I'm only caring about clicks, if I'm only caring about comments, if I'm only caring about volume of response, you know, or, you know, to your point, who's arguing in the comments or who's saying good story, you can get steered wrong. You know, I think it's important to have a moral compass and decide, hey, what's really important. And for me, I love stories about grinders, guys who are willing to do anything for the sport because I relate to them. And then I also, you know, human interest stories to me are really important because 
athletes are people. They've made that very clear with, you know, the Players' Tribune and a lot of their own self-publishing that they've done. And I think it's really important that athletes understand that journalists see them as people too. That's part of the deal. I mean, journalists are people as well, right? You know, I've got health issues that I was telling you about earlier and everyone's got something going on, right? So um, those kinds of stories to me are really important. To, you know, even if he's not the number one pick, right? Even if, uh, you know, he's not going to play a ton as a rookie, his path to the NBA is so unusual compared to the average player. That's a story that needs to be told. And I would hope that, you know, over time people will associate me with those types of stories and they'll come in and they'll read them, you know, because they're seeing me write them. And I think that's the case in, in some cases, but, um, you don't want to become too focused on the audience. You really don't because audiences can change. Um, tastes can change. And if you're basing your self-worth on external, um, you know, influences, you're going to be lost at some point. And you're, you're way better to be focused on what are your goals? You know, what do you care about? Um, what are the things that you want to be contributing to the world? And, you know, if you're getting positive feedback, well, all the better. That's the, the cherry on top, right? But uh, it's much easier to be internally focused, in my opinion, and, and, and stay the course, play the long game than it is to just count on, you know, likes or followers or any of that stuff. Because, you know, it, yeah. I keep adding followers on Instagram and it's never made me happy. I don't know what's the threshold where all of a sudden I'm going <laughs> to feel fulfilled. You know what I mean? No, seriously. Like, yeah. uh, it's, uh, you know, you can see your following grow from 10,000 to 30,000 in a couple months and it's amazing. It's a great feeling. But is it lasting? Like, is that going to be, you know, you're going to wake up one day and say, I did it. I hit 173,000 followers on Instagram mission accomplished, life is good, you know, I'm I'm happy. It, it doesn't work that way. It, it never does. What's amazing is that by staying true to this idea, you also end up having these like pretty, you know, <laughs> another uh uh nickname they have for you on the podcast is the Oracle from Oregon. Uh is that you end up being able to like really predict some things, but you do it kind of like based on heart and whether it's the success of Kevin Durant, your early prediction that Giannis Antetokounmpo would become the greatest basketball player in the world, or I've been thinking something smaller is that like in the midst of the NBA bubble, um, you chose to focus on an NBA referee, Scott Foster and his love of pickleball. And I mean, this is, uh, you know, coming years before, you know, pickleball is like showing up on like CNN of like, what's the hot new sport? <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, by just following that human interest of, Oh, here's something really interesting that like a story that I want to tell you end up becoming ahead of the curve or in some ways maybe setting the curve. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That's absolutely a goal of mine. I, just for your audience's uh, sake, I made that nickname up for myself. The Oracle <laughs> okay. of Oregon. So no one's ever called me that besides myself. Now, a couple of people have humored me along the way, but, uh, that's really self-aggrandizing name, but it, it gets at who I'm trying to be. A lot of times the focus in sports journalism is going to be what's next, not what's happening. You know, people will say, well, I just watched the game. Why do I have to read about it? You know, tell me about, you know, who's, who's the next big one coming down the line. And I'm still pretty old school. I love writing a good game story. I love trying to capture the moment of, you know, this guy won a playoff game for the first time. This guy hit a game winning shot. Even if it's already happened, I love trying to paint those pictures. I think it's really important. I believe in kind of the historical nature. Like I go back sometimes and read stories from the seventies and, uh, you know, reading a good game story from the seventies is so rewarding. And I hope, you know, maybe 30 years from now, people would ever do that with my stories too. But I do think you, you tend to make your name a little bit on your ability to prognosticate and to see who are the next people are coming. 
sometimes that can be from a feeling, you know, just the Giannis thing happened. I was just at a bar in Michigan, um, you know, before a Michigan football game, a couple of days before a Michigan football game, watching him go head to head with LeBron. I couldn't believe how fearless he was at such a young age. And he's just dunking over and over and over. I'm like, this nobody can stop this guy. What's it going to look like in three years? You know, if they can't stop him now, he's only going to get better. So that was more of a gut feel. Um, you know, I did one this year on Caitlin Clark before she really blew up during the women's basketball tournament. And, and she was already, you know, a, a premier player. There was no question about it. But that one was less about feel. And it was more about just hearing the chatter among basketball players of like, you guys have no idea how good this woman is. Like she can really hoop. And the deep respect that, you know, big time players had for her. Um, even though she hadn't fully broken through completely to the mainstream at that point, that was really the 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 button that pushed for me to be like, hey, you have to go and write a story about her. So that wasn't one where I was just like wandering through the fields of Iowa and stumbled upon this basketball <laughs> genius. It was more like, hey, idiot, like get out there and write because the story is right in front of your face. And it, it paid off brilliantly because she played so well in March. So you can come at what's next or those big type of stories in a lot of different ways, uh, I guess is my point. But um, the pickleball one, great example, fell in my lap. Uh, the question I'm getting more from anyone outside the bubble at the start of the bubble is, well, what are people doing for fun in there? Right. And there was almost nothing to do. Right. We were basically penned in. We couldn't drive. There was no stores to shop at. Uh, at the very beginning, they were delivering our food on trays to our hotel rooms. And then they slowly opened up like kind of a little cafeteria area. There was no restaurants to eat at that we had access to. We could not go to the areas of the campus where the players were. Uh, we could go to practices. We could take an official shuttle bus to the games. That was basically it, right? And in one of these little courtyards, um, Scott Foster had taken it upon himself because he's this huge pickleball player to create a little pickleball court to chalk it out, to put the net up. He had brought paddles. He was just really into it. He had been into it for years. And he slowly but surely won over everybody else, largely because people were just bored with time to kill, right? There's only so many hours you can spend every day in the pool. So that was one where it's like, well, uh, what's going on here in the bubble? Everybody's asking me this. <laughs> and it's like, I'm walking to the little cafeteria area. And it's like, well, there's a pickleball game right here. It's the only thing going on in the bubble, other than the people who are renting bicycles. And, you know, it's kind of hard to write a bike riding story, right? So um, <laughs> that was one where it was like, there was no alternatives. And had pickleball never taken off, I still would have been proud of that story because it was pretty funny and it really captured who Scott Foster is. I mean, just this competitive maniac, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, who's, who's talking trash to all of his fellow referees and everything else. But um, the fact that pickleball did take off and, you know, that story actually helped inspire my mother. She is an avid pickleball player, plays year round, multiple times a week. And she kind of got into it because of that story. So that's one where it's like there's been so many benefits from it. And, uh, you know, people definitely remember that story as like one of the signature things from the bubble. And, you know, a big part of the reason why is there wasn't a lot else going on. Now, you talk about jumping at the opportunity to go to the NBA bubble. You end up being there for 93 days. At what point during that time are you? does it occur to you like, I'm going to write a book about this. Well, another Forrest Gump moment for you. Uh, it wasn't my idea to write the book, if you can believe that. Really? I I had come out of the initial quarantine period, and I had written kind of a first person, um, almost like a diary entry of like, hey, here's what the bubble's like type of story. And um, an agent uh, you know, who specialized in sports books, especially basketball books, saw that story and was like, I, this is a book. 
like this should be a book. He he's the one who had the vision. So he reached out to me and thankfully I had known a couple of his other clients just from reading their works or even reading their books. So I didn't just immediately put it in the spam folder, which is like probably how I would have reacted, you know, to most just kind of like blind outreach like that because I had never heard of this agent. It wasn't his fault. I just didn't know anything about the literary game at all. And uh, he said, "Look, I read your story." here's what you're going to do. You're going to put it into a proposal. We're going to get this out to as many publishers as possible. I'm confident someone's going to buy this. Um, I think you're going to be able to get paid pretty well off of it. He wasn't putting it on too thick, but you know, he was saying like, look, you know, this, this is something here. There, there's no question about it. And at the time, I mean, social media was crazy. The, the amount of interest in the bubble, like I posted that video of myself just pacing back and forth, trying to get my Apple watch steps inside my hotel room. And it was getting like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views on Twitter, because everybody was just like laughing at me stuck in this little fishbowl, you know, because we couldn't even leave our hotel rooms for like the first uh, 10 days that we got there. So um, it was his idea. And so I, I followed everything that he told me to do. You know, here, write the outline. Here's what we need to have. Here's how long it's going to be. Here's what kind of access we've got. Here's... Uh, why this book could be different than any other project that gets written about it. And so within like the first two or three weeks of being in the bubble, we had already put all that stuff together. And time was of the essence because I think he was worried somebody else might try to do a book. And I got lucky, or maybe you would say unlucky, in that I was one of the only people who stayed for the entire time from a writer perspective. <laughs> a lot of writers just kind of split the experience half and half. And so that gave me a, a, a unique kind of leg up on some of the other writers because you can't write a bubble book if you're only there for half the time, right? So right. Um, we got lucky. Nobody else wrote the book. And what was interesting to me is that when he shopped it, there actually was not as much interest as he had assumed there would be from the publishing houses. They thought, oh, this is going to be a fad. Pandemic's going to end in December. Everybody's going to move on. This is going to be a blip in the radar. And there was one publishing house, Abrams, uh, Abrams Books, Jameson Stoltz, who loved the idea. He was a basketball fan, but not a diehard. He had been following things on Twitter, kind of stuck you know, at home like everybody else. And he took a chance on it. And I was so lucky and glad that he did. And, you know, we we reached the agreement within a matter of a couple of weeks. And the only part of the deal was that my Washington Post bosses did not want me to write any of the book while I was there because they wanted me to focus on my post work. And they said, OK, well, once the bubble ends, you'll have some time before the next season so you can go ahead and write the book. So that actually gave me a little bit of a distance, you know, not writing it in the in the bubble was actually probably better because it allowed me to have a little bit of perspective on it. Um, but it was going back to what I said earlier about, you know, a challenge becoming an opportunity. It was just something where I said, yes, 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 yes. To every single thing that came out, like the, the you know, publisher is like, hey, you should do this. Yes. You know, the publishing house is like, well, we're going to give you this amount of money. Uh, yes. You know, whatever. Let's just do it. This is something I want to do. It's a fun challenge. I've never written a book before. Always wanted to write one. I'm not going to get a, a better opportunity to drop in my lap than this, you know? So it, no brainer all the way around. Now you talk a lot about sort of like walking through these open doors, right? You have the opportunity to start writing for the Blazers in your evenings. Yes. You have the opportunity to write the book. Yes. Without like naming names or like anything, is there ever a do uh, an opportunity where you've said no, or you've you haven't taken a door that's offered to you for a strategic purpose? That's a great question. I've never been asked that question before. Um, I would say, um, 
this is one of those things where, you know, there's that psychological deal where you remember your wins and you forget your losses over time, right? Like you're way more more, uh, more likely to remember, hey, I was right about something three years ago than, you know, if you blow a prediction, uh, you know, you're, you're likely to let that one kind of, uh, you know, slip out the back of your brain. Um, I would say that maybe the closest to what you're describing is this idea of television work, because when I was in Portland, I would appear on local TV, you know, with pretty good regularity, especially on like post game shows to break down the game and to talk about things. Or if they had a big draft show, I would show up on that. And um, there's a lot more money in TV than there is in writing, you know, and I think some people, they get a taste of television and that becomes their goal, you know, and for me coming up online to then work at a magazine, to then work at a newspaper, you'd almost say like, oh, I'm traveling backwards in time. Yeah, you know? it's, yeah. it's, but obviously, SI and the Washington Post both have premier websites and you know they're very big in digital. Um, so I think for me, it was this idea of not trying to actively pursue a TV career. I never hired an agent until I hired that book agent. You know, I never had a writing agent. I never had a multimedia television agent. Um, there has been a few things here and there where like, if I had really wanted to push to try to become, you know, whether it's local TV or whatever else, okay, maybe that could have been something, but I always felt the writing part was more natural and more genuine to me. I didn't love being on camera. Um, and I like to be able, as we are doing now, having long, thoughtful conversations and instead of just spitting out talking points or sound bites. And I could do that. I felt like I could do it on television. You know, it's, it's an art. Maybe I wasn't the best at it, but I didn't feel like it was, you know, way outside my comfort zone, but it wasn't as, as rewarding. And I think the one thing with TV is when people see you, then they recognize you, you get way more text messages from people. Hey, I saw you on television. Or if you're at the grocery store, they say, Hey, you're that Blazers guy. Right. And I would get a lot more of that. But it goes back to me of doing it for the internal reason than the external reasons, right? I don't really want to be famous. You know, that's not interesting to me. Like, it's not really what motivates me. I want to be respected and have my work be something that sticks with people. But, uh, you know, having paparazzi follow me around is not my goal at all. You know, quite the opposite, right? <laughs> and so I think that that was one, you know, uh, pivot point for my career where it's like, I could have tried to go really hard at television and that would mean lose a bunch of weight and work out all the time and, you know, focus on the the TV hits and try to get to a, a network that was really big or a sport that was really big on TV. Like at CBS, you know, they do lots of golf and college football. And so if you, if that was your goal, well, if you could kind of angle that direction instead of, you know, working on basketball where they don't have the TV rights for it. So it's not as big of a priority. Right. Uh, but for me, it was just, um, it was never kind of my driving, my driving goal. So I go on, you know, every once in a while, I'll write a story and somebody will like, I'm in draft night, uh, CBS morning show, like had me on, which was kind of cool. And that's, you know, always fun, but just for like a, a quick soundbite, as opposed to trying to make that my full-time job. And I think it served me well, obviously I'm probably not as wealthy or, you know, as well known as it could have been if you go a different path, but it just goes back to what's your North star. And for me, it was just never that. It's one of the things I've admired about you so much is your ability to work within a very structured system, be it a newspaper or um, you know these big media companies, while also maintaining these independent projects. Is that balance something that you value? Do you do you tend to? Because it sounds from everything you're telling me, it's like you like both, and there's elements about both. So how do you try to strive for the balance in your life? 
Well, let me say, first of all, um, you know, the Sports Illustrated and, and the Washington Post are, are massive media organizations, but I think outsiders would be surprised at how much latitude and how much say we actually have in dictating our coverage. One of the main reasons why I love the Washington Post is I get to be kind of a one-man band on the NBA coverage. Now, we have Ava Wallace covers the Wizards for the Post. We have some other columnists who will write about the NBA, but I'm pretty much the person who you know covers the NBA. I don't have a staff like at ESPN. They got like 12 or 15 NBA writers. You know, they're, they're not fighting over stories, but they're divvying stories up, divvying teams up. That's not really the case at the Post. So if I find... Victor Wembanyama, this Spurs rookie, really interesting. Well, I get to go write about him. You know, I'm just, I don't have to run it really by that many people, and they've always been really, really supportive of my story ideas. So there's less of a difference than you think. You know, I, even though it's the Washington Post and you're going to write it a certain way and you're going to have a, a type of authority, it's going to go through a fact checking and an editing process that's very, very detailed and has very high standards and, you know, by award winning editors. The nature of the coverage is more independent than, than I think most outsiders would assume. Uh, hmm. Just and that's that's part of how our paper operates. I like to say we're a little bit of a you know a, a writer's first paper as opposed to an editor's first paper, right? Where it's kind of like a, a player friendly coach. I've had a lot of editors who are player friendly coaches where they're just like, hey man. We trust you to do the job. Let's talk about what you want to do. Give us your vision. And then, you know, they'll, they'll approve it and we go forward. So um, that's pretty rare. Um, that's why I love the post so much. That's why I think it's been a perfect home for me. I'm coming up on five years already, which is just crazy. Um, but uh, I, I think there's more in common from the independent podcasting uh, and, you know, working within this this bigger framework of the post. Now, um that being said, I you know I do think I have you know multiple pitches right for a baseball analogy like you know to me uh, trying to provide the definitive account of what has happened at a big game or the definitive profile of, a, of an important player or um, you know a definitive statistical uh, project visual project about a big moment like let's say Steph Curry breaking the three point record or. LeBron James breaking the all-time scoring record. I want to be a main source of that information to basketball fans and even non-sports fans. And the Post lets me do that, right? Because they have the artists who can kind of bring these ideas to life. They have the gravitas built up through decades of um, you know political coverage. You know, they have the platform reaching you know all these subscribers and a newsletter that reaches lots and lots of subscribers too, right? So, as a one man band, if I was a true independent, I would not be able to accomplish those goals as well as I do at the Post. So that's what I love about the Post side of it. But I also think you know, like anybody else, sitting around you know watching a game with your friends, if you're at the bar, you're at you know on the living room couch. That's more what the podcasting part is about, right? And so, yes, I'm going to provide some reporting. Um, on the show, but it's going to be more conversational. It's going to be more storytelling. It's going to probably be a little bit more fun. It's going to be more argumentative. It's going to be more universal to what sports fans are going through as they're watching the games. You know, I'm sort of watching along with you. And I think both those uh, parts are, are good for balance, right? Like you could be too serious and you could be too goofy, right? It's it's nice right. to have the yin and the yang and that, that balance. And so to me, it's just worked out great. And, and being able to do the podcast independently, for me, the, the goal with the podcast was always creative control because we saw in previous situations how decision makers could negatively influence the quality of the final product. 
And I just wanted to cut all those people out. It's, it's like, let's have as few other voices in this kitchen as possible. We're going to be the cooks. And I was very lucky that the post supported that idea and that we were able to have enough listeners, you know, choose to support us uh, as they do with their subscriptions, because without them, it's just a nice idea that never gets off the ground. Wow. It's, uh, it's, it's been an honor to be a subscriber for, uh, for all these years. Uh, my, my five bucks a month has never, uh, felt wasted. You guys have delivered Good. the be- the best well, ability is availability and you guys have always been available two times a week. Well, yeah, that's a huge focus for us. There's no question about it is the consistency of the schedule. And then the other thing that you're talking about, and I love hearing you say that because, you know, going back to that, that bike rack job I was telling you about, my boss there would constantly harp. Don't worry about price, worry about value. You'll find the right price when you're delivering value at, you know, to your customer, right? So you can sit around a boardroom and think, okay, this thing should cost $199. Oh, we should charge $249, right? But over time, you get a feel for your, um, your customers. You want to do surveys. You want to kind of get back their feedback and decide, are they getting their money's worth? That's ultimately the most important thing that's going to sustain a business. It's not about, you know, having a huge peak one month and then, you know, we're going to put everything on sale and spike sales and, um, or we're going to raise the prices and see if, you know, people get desperate before Christmas. And so we're going to make an extra killing. You know, it's not about that. It's about trying to find that fair, um, price point where you're going to deliver value. And for us at, at the goat, I'm proud. We've never raised our price and everybody else is, you know, inflating prices. We haven't changed it once. And we have noticed that we have a really strong retention rate. In other words, people stick with us and that means we're delivering the value. And that's ultimately how people will tell you if you're, if you're pricing accurately and if you're delivering the value is they just don't buy it. If it's not, if it's not fulfilling that, uh, that role for you. So, um, you know, that's probably like the best compliment you could tell me is that, oh yeah, I always feel like I'm getting my money's worth. That's really what we're, we're aiming to do. Obviously we want to make you laugh, you know, and that kind of stuff too. But from a business standpoint, like an entrepreneurial standpoint, we want everyone going home feeling like, oh, this is the best five bucks I ever spent, or at least, you know, some of the best five bucks I ever spent. I love the mentality. Last question for you. When you think about the future, when they, you think about the future of your work, uh, be it in writing, podcasting, just storytelling in general, what gets you the most excited? That's a tough one because I'm not very good at the long-term thinking, as I've said over and over again. You know, I don't have some big vision of okay, I'm going to be entering like the metaverse and all this kind of stuff. I do try to stay up on, you know, TikTok and Threads, and when the new platforms come out, I want to see what makes those work well, what gets people excited. Is there a fit for me on any of these things that you know could be something that would help me take the next step of my career? Um, but I'll be honest. I mean, I I worked really really hard during the pandemic, kind of ran myself into the ground especially with the book project and then going to the Olympics um, that I, I'm almost catching up. You know, it's like part of my my vision right now is like getting my life rebalanced a little bit, making sure that I'm in a good place, place just mentally. And, um, you know, I'm still feeling refreshed. And it's been a real recommitment to the writing for me over this past season. I scaled back some of the other side uh, projects I was doing. I, I had done a whole bunch of different podcasts during the pandemic because everybody was launching them and a lot of live shows on different services and, and that kind of thing because people were sitting around just wanting to talk sports. And I scaled a lot of those back because I was you know, getting back onto the road and really wanting to pour myself more into the feature writing. So um, for right now, it's kind of all steady. I think I'm probably on the lookout for a second book idea. That'd be one thing I would say. Um, I don't ha- I haven't been hit in the face with one yet. And that's typically how it goes for me, as you know. Um, but it's it's more about staying nimble, 
um, you know, making sure that you know, the work that I'm doing is still resonating with people. Um, and then, you know, just trying to make sure that I'm on the scene at the biggest moments of basketball. I mean, that's one thing I didn't mention when I was describing like my start at Blazers Edge, but it was so important to me to be in the building. That was the competitive advantage, right? The idea of there's a million people who blog, right? How many of them are going to games? How many of them have the opportunity to interview players? How many of them are going to be able to get insight that I could get as somebody who knows the sport and you know can kind of maybe relate to players in a way that the average person who's writing about the games who doesn't care as much as I do uh, would be able to do? And so for me, being in the door, being there, being courtside or as, as close as they'll let you is kind of always the end goal, right? And then at the end of the day, you could say, oh man, I can't believe it. I've covered the last 13 NBA finals. It's crazy, right? Uh, or I've covered an Olympics. Never thought I'd get to do that. Covered, uh, you know, a final uh, NCAA tournaments, you know, over and over again. Never thought I'd get the chance to do that. So kind of showing up and being available, right? For your audience, being available for your company, um, you know, being, being in person to me is just a huge, huge, um, you know, important distinction that I think a lot of media members, especially over the last 10 years or so, have just valued less because, you know, you can create really good content without going, you know, and there's more and more people who do it every single day. And for me, that that is not what got me excited. You know, yelling into a phone from my uh, my living room was not my goal. You know, my goal was to have, you know, a different approach and, and to be there and to get to see all these games that I would have dreamed about seeing when I was a kid. And then hopefully capturing them well enough for people who couldn't be there to, to maybe help them feel like they were there. It brings up a little detail that I I, I wanted to mention at some point during uh, this interview. But you know, over the years that we have communicated via Instagram, I have never sent you a DM that you did not at the very least like tap back. And I know I'm, <laughs> there's got to be so many people hitting you up that you're engaging with on a regular basis. You know, I know that like I felt that principle of yours just in this little tiny one-on-one -on -one interaction. And it's like, that stuff is so meaningful, whether it's showing up to the big game or just tapping back a, a, an Instagram DM. I think that there's so much that all, all artists can learn from. Um, and it's just incredibly valuable. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think it always helps when people are replying to the work that I've done, like, you know, in relation to a podcaster, you're probably talking trash about Georgia football against Michigan. I mean, <laughs> it's like, first of all, I kind of like the banter, right? And a lot, and frankly, I have a lot of time to kill when I'm traveling, especially. So I make a point of like going through all the messages on a regular basis to kind of keep those kinds of conversations going. But then when you find people whose opinions you respect or their insight you, you respect, or maybe they're funny or the work that they're doing is great. Like, you know, the, the show that you put together, as I told you, I don't know anything about films and I was like engrossed by your podcast. So um, when you find those kinds of people, look, it's in my best interest to do that because let's say you're the next Scorsese. Well, it'd probably be pretty nice to know the next Scorsese, right? Like that'd probably be pretty helpful. You know, you, you might want to have that. And, you know, for me, I've never been this big extrovert, you know, especially in public. I'm always pretty quiet, keep to myself. I am absolutely believe that, you know, you should be hearing first, speaking less, right? Like just watching people's body language, those kinds of things. A lot of times writers gets or reporters get so excited to ask a question in a press conference, they miss the real story because they're not watching. They're not, you know, they're, they're using their mouth too much. They're not using their eyes and ears. And so that's always been kind of like my approach in real life. But I think um, the longer I've been in the media, the more I realize, like I, I've seen generations of people kind of come and go, you know, the kind of people who stick uh, or the people who really care. And if you can kind of see that passion in them, 
then it's an easy investment, right? Um, to to keep those kinds of dialogues going because you never know where it pays off. And there's been a number of people who I've helped kind of like mentor in sports writing who have gone on to be like big stars, you know, and, and I don't want to embarrass them by, by saying who they are, but like people who are on TV every single day are having a lot of success. And so that is like super validating to me of like this idea of, well, you must have helped them in some small way. And, you know, you, you get to benefit from it, uh, you know, for years and years after the fact, but just also of the general philosophy of like, well, you know, if somebody asks for you know, a piece of advice and they're 17 years old, well, just try to give it to them because maybe when they're 24, they're going to be making 10 times what you're making. <laughs> you never know, right? So uh, it could pay off in other ways down the line, I guess. Uh, but I, I think in general, um, you know, it, it's easier for me to be you know, heavy into communication, two-way conversations, um, that kind of stuff online, socially, than it is even in person. So that's that's kind of why I have made a point to do that. But you do have to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? I mean, there's a lot of people screaming on Twitter. There's a lot of people freaking out in emails to the post. And, you know, it's it, you have to pick and choose your battles. And for me, that's um, that part has been difficult, you know, because I, I either want to be all or nothing, right? And, and that part, it, it can get distracted. So you got to keep your focus and, and try to, uh, you know, find the people who are communicating with you, you know, in, uh, in good faith and with, with uh, you know, the right interests in mind. And then usually you'll come out okay at the end. I love that. I love that. Ben, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk with us today. Where can people follow you? Where can people follow your work? And where can people find the podcast? We're going to be here all day if you let me plug stuff, man. Uh, so Washington Post, <laughs> Washington Post slash sports, you know, it's typically where all my writing will go. I have a, a post up newsletter that people can uh, subscribe to. The link is in my Twitter bio, my X bio, whatever they're calling it now which is at Ben Golliver, G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. And the, the podcast is greatestofalltalk.com. If any of you are a basketball fan and you are not subscribed to Greatest of All Talk, go do it. You will not be disappointed. Uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts that has ever been made. Uh, ben Golliver, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>